a vast army. The scripture that was quoted there in that video is Ezekiel 36. Over the last many weeks, as many of you know, we've been in a series called Watchmen. That series is, uh, we've got this week and, and next week we'll wrap it up. As I was on sabbatical back last fall, that passage of scripture I read over and over in Ezekiel 36. Because one of the questions he asked, he says, God asked Ezekiel, do you believe these dry bones can live? And his answer is, Lord, only you know. It's a great question. Can lost souls, can people who are lost, can they live again? The Lord says he's going to raise up a vast army. We believe that not only from Ezekiel, but we believe it otherwise. Ezekiel 33 is where I'm going to read today. But Ezekiel is kind of an interesting character. You can look, find Ezekiel if you want to look it up in your Bible. It's... uh, It's about six books over from Proverbs in between Lamentations and Daniel. But let me give you kind of a little backdrop of Ezekiel if you don't know much about Ezekiel. Just so you know, I I went for months when I became a Christian in 1986. First eight months, I didn't didn't know what books of the Old Testament were at all. Okay, I, I really didn't know. I just, when I got saved and I gave my life to the Lord, I just got locked in on the New Testament and read it over and over and over and really didn't know anything about the Old Testament. I think I've shared with you before when I, six months or just a few weeks before I was saved, the question was asked in a Trivial Pursuit game, what's the first book of the Bible? And I didn't know. And they said, well, it's Genesis. And they were laughing at me, my mother-in-law. And I said, well, the only thing I know about Genesis is that Phil Collins is the lead singer for them. <laughs> so I really didn't know anything about it. Then a few weeks later, I gave my life to the Lord. And then I read consistently in Proverbs and Psalms, which would be in the Old Testament, and just the New Testament. That's all I had. Because the little Bible that I had, I carried around in my pocket. I read it over and over and over for the first eight months. And uh, it took me a while to get into the New Testament. So Ezekiel was an interesting guy. His name means God strengthens. But he was probably one of the most colorful people in Scripture. The Babylonian army had swept through Judah and had deported out of Judah large groups of citizens. And Ezekiel had gone into exile with one of the first groups that got swept out of there. And so Ezekiel becomes God's messenger as a captive in Babylon. So he is in prison. I don't know if he's necessarily in prison, but he's in captivity at least in Babylon. And Ezekiel, if you read it, Ezekiel would... He would cry and wail and slap his thighs. I'm not sure what all that was about. Slapping his thighs. He ate a scroll. Uh, He did some pretty unusual things from not having his clothes on to other things, okay? But he was trying to burn these messages into the people's minds. Ezekiel was like, again, other prophets. They were asked to do some pretty strange things. But let me ask you a question. If you saw a car going down the road, and that car was headed towards a bridge, and they're going 60, 70 miles an hour, and it looks as if that bridge is solid, but halfway across that bridge, it's out. And there's a 1,000-foot drop. 
And you look in that car and you see it's people you know, not just even people, and let's go people you don't know, you try to stop them, but it's people you know. Don't you think you'd do some pretty strange things to try to stop them from going over that bridge? I mean, if you had to stand out there buck naked, screaming at them to get them to get, pay attention and stop them, wouldn't you do that? You would. So when we read the Old Testament prophets, as we read them, keep that in mind, that they will go to extremes because they know because God's shown them the bridge is out. The bridge is out. So Ezekiel 33. And just a reminder, he is speaking to, again, his own people, his own family, his own nation. Ezekiel 33, let's go. The word of the Lord came to me. He said, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make them their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood would be upon their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be upon their own head and, and have saved them. I think I've got, make sure I'm, I've got my, you know when you print something off? Let me go back. You know, it's always good to just read it out of here. Because <laughs> I'm not reading that up there. Yeah, let me see if I can catch up. We're going to start all over. Go back to the first one. I'm going to make sure I'm getting this right. The word of the Lord came to me. He said, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make them their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be upon their head. Since they have heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood would be upon their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will also hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you, sure, you will surely die and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not warn the wicked person to turn in their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their own sin, though you yourself be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what... You're saying, our offenses and sins have weighed us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them. Because sometimes I think, I'm going to say, read this real quick. But sometimes I think when we look in the Old Testament, we see this God who's just trying to figure out how to kill people. That's what we get this mentality of that kind of God. But I want you to hear this. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God's begging them, isn't he? Why do you choose this? I have this, but you're choosing this. 
So Ezekiel, again, just a reminder, God calls him to be a what? A watchman. And a reminder what a watchman is, as we've talked about over the weeks, but just in case it's your first time. Or A watchman in the ancient days was posted on the wall at the highest position so he could see out. Whether it was a day or night, his job was to keep watch for what impending doom, especially, but to, to, in case there was an enemy coming, the watchman was there to blow the trumpet. That's what his role was. That's what Ezekiel was called to do. Allie, I see you holding it up there. I'm going to come and get it. Thank you, ma'am. But what's interesting about Ezekiel's role as a watchman, as God called him, his warning wasn't even as much about the impending doom, which it was. But his warning was, and I think this is a warning for all of us, is that God holds holds each one of us responsible for our own behavior. But God also warns the watchman that you can't be quiet about it. (laughs) So there's two warnings going on here, right? One is to the individual going, you will be held accountable for your life. Whatever it is, however you go, you're going to be held accountable. But also to those who maybe have a watch over your life. And what I mean by that, those who have influence over your life, they can't stay quiet either. Ezekiel 33 is this turning point in the book of Ezekiel. It's from this doom and gloom to this hope. And see, for some of us, we would read that right there, and we would listen to that this morning, and we hear Ezekiel, the word coming to Ezekiel, if you believe all that. If you did, Ezekiel's hearing this, we would hear that going, God's just ready to kill somebody. No, he's saying, why do you choose death? Why do you choose that? I've promised you all, but you're choosing this. Two things I want to share with you this morning, or two points, if you want to call them that. I don't usually call them points, but two thoughts. One is that the watchmen are responsible for protecting the mission. First, you've got to know what it is. Then you've got to protect it. All of us in here have been called to be watchmen for something. First, over our own soul. Then over our families our marriage, communities. But you've got to know what that is. You've got to know what you've been called to do. Like I've said before, if we're not careful, we didn't know we're supposed to be on the wall watching. And secondly, what was I, what was I looking for if I was on the wall? Dr. David Busick, one of our general superintendents in the Church of the Nazarene, uh, he talks about, I've written a, few, a few years ago I heard him talking about this book called The Mission Drift. And a guy named uh, Peter Greer and Charles, Chris Horst wrote this book 
about organizations and, and uh, churches, things of that nature. It's called Mission Drift, the Unspoken Crisis Facing Leaders, Charities, and Churches. And they say that most of the time, mission drift is unintended. They, if, you, if you'd have told me I would have ended up here, I would have never ended up here. I just somehow or another drifted here. And now I'm here. But he talks about Harvard University. The University of Harvard, Harvard University, whichever. He said, Harvard is a respected university, but it no longer maintains its foundational calling to be thoroughly Christian school. Once its logo read, Christio el Ecclesia and Veritas, meaning truth for Christ in the church. I'd say the school no longer resembles a Christ-centered institution, would you say? <laughs> Yale University was founded in 1701 by Cotton Mather, a New England pastor, along with a Christian businessman named Elihu Yale. As a reaction, get this, as a reaction to their concerns over the secularism of Harvard. <laughs> they determined to establish a place of higher learning that would, be, would not relinquish its Christian values. Now, hear what I love what they, this phrase here. It would not relinquish its Christian values in the name of education. Can I say that again? that they would not relinquish their Christian values in the name of education. Their motto was lux et veritas, in other words, light and truth. Their passion was to walk in the light of God, was resolute and firm. However, today, Yale excels in many areas. Spiritual formation is not one of them. Necessarily. So, what happened to them along the way? I think it's the same thing that happens to any college, any denomination, any local church, any community, any family, any individual that forgets of its intentional focus of why it exists. This is the beginning of mission drift. Greer and Horst go on to say, said, mission drift unfolds slowly. Said, it's like a current. It carries organizations away from their core purpose and identity. And I love what it says, even the hottest fires, even the hottest fires, if left unattended, will eventually go out. Even the hottest fires left unattended will eventually go out. I'm speaking to some of you today in your spiritual journey right now, and you know it's hitting right at home. Speaking to you, some of them, about your marriage right now, about your family. If you go back to why you got married, back to why you started, somewhere, somewhere along the way it drifted. Maybe not intentional, it's just drifted, and here you are. Churches, denominations. I hope you understand why we work so hard here at Renovation. We're working so hard on our mission and to get it very clear and to get it deep within us.
Because I'm convicted of these words that they go on to say. He said, once an organization ignores its source of heat, drift is only a matter of time. And you can take organization again and put it in there. Your soul, your individual journey, you can put your family, you can put your marriage, you can put your church, you can put your organization. Barna says, George Barna, I've quoted him quite a bit over the last few weeks, but Barna says, we've made church activity and attendance our number one goal when reality, where reality, where when reality where the rubber meets the road is in the transformation, service, and sacrifice in our lives. We've made church attendance and church activity as our marker. And you know I've shown you over, this, over the last three weeks of what Barna says about who really is being transformed in the church. It's pretty scary when you see the statistics. See, I believe Sunday activity and attendance and, 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 and attendance is critical. I believe showing up in church is critical. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it cannot be the benchmark necessarily of a growing church. I believe the benchmark should be, should be how does it transform people, become transformers of our community where we are engaged and influential? What are the marks? What, what is saying that we're doing that? Because a transform, if you're not transformed, you won't be out there transforming, I can guarantee you. Won't happen. And stay busy. We can have some more programs at the church and keep you active. See, I think there are certain moments in life, and I think we're in that window as church in America, but there are certain moments in life that I believe are disproportionately the weight of them are disproportionate because of what's at stake in that moment. Some of you are in that window right now. Again, maybe in your business, maybe in your family, maybe wherever it is, you're in a, you're in a window of time that is disproportionately impactful because of what's at stake. It just is. I've had those. We're talking about it in the uncommon training right now called Game Changers. Game Changers are those points in life, what we call it life-altering, life-altering time stops, you'll never be the same again kind of moment. In other words, the rest of your life you will look partly through the lens of what you just did, what you just went through. Some of those are coming from brokenness. Some of them come from just great victories and God revealing himself. One of mine was in 1986. I told you before, I gave my life to the Lord in 1986, but what happened eight months later in 1987 was as significant in our journey. I'd been a Christian eight months. At that time, our 14-month-old daughter, Sydney, who those of you know uh, and be praying for them again today, they're, her and Andy, my son-in-law Andy, those of you who don't know, my son-in-law is also our youth pastor. They're up at... Uh, uh, pine Top with our kids for a winter chill and a retreat. So we're praying for them. But Sydney at that time was 14 months old. Woke up one morning, her eye was, left eye was paralyzed. Her eyelid was all the way down. Her eyelid was paralyzed. Uh, the, the eye was paralyzed. We didn't know what it was. We took her to the doctor. Uh, they said, hey, man, you, they did a CAT scan, said, you've got to go to Little Rock, to the Children's Hospital in Little Rock. 
So that's where we headed to. Again, I'd been Christian 14 months. Again, I thought, kind of thought in my mind, when you become a Christian, things work out. And you know, it's all going to work out just exactly great, okay? But here we are in the middle of this. So I started praying like many of you pray. In desperation, you say, Lord, if you will heal. I said, Lord, if you will heal Sydney, I'll do whatever you ask. Anybody ever prayed that prayer? Not necessarily about that, but you've just said, Lord, okay. If you'll do this, I'll do that. So we went to, the North Little, I went to Little Rock, to the children's hospital there, and we spent a few days, and she had CAT scan, and, or MRI, actually, and uh, they still couldn't figure it out. And I was sitting in the, in the waiting room there, and I said, Lord, I, I got up started walking down the hall, and I said, Lord, I don't understand all this. I know I told you the other day, if you'd heal Sydney, I'd do whatever you ask, but I've changed my mind. Whether you heal Sydney or not, I'll do whatever you ask. And those of you who know Sydney, she still has a paralyzed left eye. She's 30 years old. I can't answer that for you. I don't know why it is, but she's been prayed over so many times and been in our prayers. I don't know. She has migraines that she deals with every day that she, she overcomes. Eight, two weeks later, we're in a citywide crusade there in Hooks, Texas. A little town we were living in. They had a citywide crusade. Almost every church in town was, was in it. It's in August, and I can't imagine, if, if you know August in Texas, why you'd have an outdoor crusade in August in Texas. I mean, it must be testing everybody's limit, okay? I mean, you're just sweating to no end and all this kind of stuff. So we're out there, and every night we're going. Our church was involved in our little Baptist church there. Was, and, and I say little is bigger than this church is right now. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Uh, but our Baptist church we were part of, and uh, so when every night, about halfway through the week, I'm starting to go, wow, okay, something's going on here. I think I'm called to do what that guy's doing. I think I'm called to preach. And I kept going, no, 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 Lord. First off, I was the guy in college who dropped out of speech class when I found out you really were going to have to give a speech. So I hated speaking in public. I hated being out there. I hated, I could shoot a basketball or play baseball or play basketball in front of thousands of people. But talking in front of people, that's a whole, that was a whole different deal. So I'm wrestling with it. I'm wrestling with it. The next Sunday morning, the brother of this guy, this, this, this evangelist, comes to our Baptist church, packed house. We're the last, Jen and I, I think, we're the last ones in. We're on the last seat that you can even sit down. We sit down. This guy gets to the end of his sermon. I have no idea what his sermon was. He gets to the end of the sermon. And he says, I've never done this before. And most of you know in Baptist church, we never do this. But I just believe today the Lord is calling a young man into ministry. And it's, it's today. He's calling him. I didn't move. <laughs> I tell people in those pews, you know those pews, I mean, when you have pews and have that piece of wood that runs, runs across the top of it? I, I know why they're so loose. Because the grip you're putting on them, you know, it's just like this force. You're like, ah. <laughs> that night we go back to the crusade. Afterwards, we help him put up everything. We drive home. I pull into our, we pull into our carport, Jan and I in Sydney. And I said, Jan, I have something to tell you. She goes, I already know. I said, no, nah, you don't know this. <laughs> she said, I know you, you, you've been called to preach. I said, yeah, I have been. Two weeks go by. I'm wrestling with God. I'm wrestling, wrestling. The enemy, it's, I feel like it's an attack. You call it whatever you want to, but going, who are you? Because many of you know I lived 10 years away from God, and there's a lot of crap inside of that 10 years that I hate, that I despise. I, I, it, I, I just wish it never had happened. It's in there, and the enemy's going, who's ever going to listen to you? First off, 
you're not going to be willing to get up front. <laughs> Secondly, who's going to listen to you if you did talk? Who? So two weeks later, we went Sunday night. I'm, 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 I, our Baptist church, we, did, we didn't have altars. So the pastor at the end did some kind of invitation. I have no idea what he preached about either. So I know how valuable sermons are apparently, huh? Uh, I have, no idea. I have no idea what he was talking about. But I went down that night and did kind of like this is right here. Not no altar, just the front of the stage. I knelt down and just began to pray and cry, my, cry out to the Lord. I said, Lord, if this is real, I need to know, and I need to know clearly that this is you. That night I went to sleep like I do most nights. And in the middle of the night, I had a dream. And in this dream was a lady who... I, I believe is a, an evangelist. She's a female evangelist in a charismatic church that Jan and I knew. And in this dream, she was at the front of a class. She was standing in front of the class, and Jan and I were sitting in chairs in this dream. And she walked down to me. She said, she took that piece of paper that was folded in this dream, and she gave it to me. She said, this is your assignment. I opened it up, and it said, Ezekiel 33. I wake up going, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. I have no idea what Ezekiel is. <laughs> because again, like I told you up to that point, I hadn't been reading anything in the Old Testament. I had no, but it had 33. So I thought, okay, maybe it's a book of the Bible. So I go to the front of my Bible. Oh, Ezekiel. I go to Ezekiel 33. Oh, wait a second. Hey, son of man, I made you a watchman for the house of Israel. If you do not warn the wicked man of his wicked ways, and he dies, his blood is on upon your head. I'm going, okay. You made it clear. And those who early knew me starting to preach, I hated it because I threw up all the time. I, would, I, I love what Craig Rochelle says. He said, I used to throw up all the time before I preached. Now I just throw up in my mouth right before I preach. And that's not true. <laughs> I would throw up, but I knew God had called me. And when you know that, you keep going. And you keep going. And you don't care if you're sick. You don't care. That's the reason why some of us, I think, struggle sometimes of having the grit to keep going because you don't know what you're called to. You don't know where you're headed. You don't even know what to protect. You've been called and you don't even know what you're supposed to be watching. Over the last four years here at Renovation, I've had people tell me, you need to take the vision and mission that you've got on your heart, and you need to put that on the shelf for a while. I let it drift. I can't let that happen again, ever. I went for about a year and a half letting it drift. It ain't drifting no more as long as I'm here. Now, I may die before somewhere along that. I die up here preaching someday from a heart attack. I don't know. But I ain't letting that happen again. I've been called to protect it. You don't have to like it. You don't even have to attend here. I'm all right with that. I love you. You need to go wherever you need to go. There's great churches out there. I'm just telling you, we're in the mode of protection now. Not in protection as in this sense of going, it's all mine, it's all mine. We believe God's called us to this. You think I would do this just because I, I, this is fun? <laughs> it is a calling. And which leads to the second thing that I want to share with you. Watchmen are responsible for seeing, discerning, speaking the truth with vigilance from a place of not on 
my watch. Dad, when's the last time you prayed over your family and you begin to pray over them and you pray for your children and you in your mind, you're saying to the enemy, not on my watch. And you're praying over your marriage going, not on my watch. He told Ezekiel, their blood will be upon your hands. Yes, they're responsible individually, but you're responsible because you've been put on watch. And one of the greatest challenges, I believe, of a watchman, he has to see, then tell the truth for the common good, even at personal risk. Churchill against Hitler. Wilberforce in England speaking for abolition. Martin Luther King. The watchman has to be willing to stand up and to speak out. Ezekiel 56, 10 through 12. And God is just railing on these guys, these watchmen. He said, For the leaders of my people, the Lord's watchmen, his shepherds, are blind and ignorant. They're like silent watchdogs that give no warning when danger comes. They love to lie around sleeping and dreaming. Like greedy dogs, they are never satisfied. They are ignorant shepherds, all following their own path and intent on personal gain. Come, they say, let us get some wine and have a party. Let's all get drunk. Then tomorrow we'll do it again and have an even bigger party. Wouldn't you just love to have that person being on watch for you? (laughs) The watchman has to have the unique capacity to see when the enemy is invading. They cannot be ignorant. In other words, mean lack of knowledge. There has to be spiritual discernment. The word yada here that is used for the word knowledge, the Hebrew word for for knowledge is yada. It means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to recognize by sight, hearing of certain signs, and to know accurately. Mute. Unfortunately, in this day and age, there's too many of us willing to be silenced. We're afraid we'll be shouted down into a corner so we just don't come out of the corner. Throughout our history in our country, there have been a lot of blind, ignorant, and mute people. I didn't live then, so it's hard to cast judgment on why. I'm supposedly called a Christian nation. Nouns, I mean, Christian is usually better as a noun than it is an adjective, but I'd say Native Americans... We're nearly exterminated in this Christian country. Women's rights. We're denied in this Christian country. Good Christians in the South beat their slaves. I would say to these minorities, the message of Christ got lost. What will be the next one? 
What will be the next one we stay silent on? And that someday someone will ask, how did you stay so quiet? You know, this generation, the millennials and Gen Zs, they'd much rather feed the hungry, dig water wells, and build homes for the homeless and care for the hurting than gather in enormous facilities. It's frightening to think that we may have built a lot of buildings over this time, over the last 20 or 30 years, that there's a generation coming that could care less about them. (laughs) Another great concern I have for Gen Z is they don't need intermediates. Gen Z would be those born after 9-11 up till now. They don't need the parents and the teachers and the coaches and the mentors as much as the others because they are always connected. And they're independent in this sense. But they have immediate access to information. So if I have immediate access to information to listen to anybody I want to, why do I need an intermediate? The problem with that is is getting a whole lot of information without wisdom, isn't it? And knowing what to do with it. And that's where the intermediates come in. Francis Chan, just a few weeks ago, I heard a message from him. Those of you who know Francis Chan, it goes even deeper, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I do believe it's the gist of what he was saying. He said, I hear this generation, millennials and Zs, say that they want to help the poor build wells around the world, but they are unwilling to live in purity. And he goes on to say, who will shout you down for wanting to help the poor? <laughs> who will shout you down on that? And we should be helping the poor and the disadvantaged but not sacrificing the holiness of God in the process. We can't do just one. It has to be both. James Bryan Smith, I told you last week his statement on, he said, our goal is not tolerance or equality, but love. Our goal is love. I tried to, you can go back and listen to it if you think I'm taking this, it's kind of throwing you off here. But there's a difference between phileo love, which scripture talks about, that's that warm, affectionate, brotherly love, and agape love, which is sacrificial love, which is love I choose to go do. It's not anything you've done. Brother Paul Sr. used to say, and it stuck with me for these years, he said, you can curse me, you can spit on me, you can slander me, but there's one thing you can't do. You can't stop me from loving you because it's not based on you, it's based on who I am in him. That kind of love. But it comes with great misunderstanding because you're going to speak truth with that kind of love. You're going to stand sometimes when you're only one standing is you. It comes with great risk and great misunderstanding. Like I said, try raising your kids with phileo love and just warm and affectionate. You better be raising with agape love, which is sacrificial and it's responsible and you're willing to be misunderstood sometimes. That's the kind of love we're talking about. A few years ago, we were at Bubba Gump's in Las Vegas. Jan and I love to go to Las Vegas. We actually do. It's cheap. So we go there. We look for cheap. We were at Bubba Gump's, and we were sitting at the table and looking out over the, the strip there, and, and we were almost done, and, 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 and we're sitting there, and, and all of a sudden, I say all of a sudden, this 
family comes and sits down. Some look like late teens, early 20s uh, kids with a mom and dad of, of another ethnic group. And the only reason I share that is is because what I'm about to share, the rest of it, this day and age, you just got to be careful. You know, when you, when you approach someone that it's not seen as something that you don't mean. But we're sitting there, and, and this one young man, and he looked... And in lack of a better way to say it, and please understand my heart behind this, I, you know, tatted up, looked pretty gangsta feel to it. <laughs> I'm just saying, but I'd say that about any ethnic group if I saw some. I'm just saying that's what it felt like. And man, he was cursing. I mean, it was from, I mean, any word that you could think of, he's sitting at a dinner table in public, as loud, not as loud as he can, I'm sure, but he's cursing so loud, and it's just going everywhere. You can just hear it. He's cursing at his family. He's cursing at the waitress or waiter. He's cursing at everybody. And Jan and I, I mean, we're about to leave, but we're just kind of shocked. So I get up and go to the restroom, and I come back, and I ask Jan if she's ready to go, and she says, sure. And she gets up, she taps this young man on the shoulder and hands him a note. That's exactly what I thought, oh boy. That's exactly what I thought. I had no warning, nobody told me this was about to happen. I said, what did you just do? What did, what did you say to him? And, and we're working through it. She didn't copy it down, so we're paraphrasing the best we can remember in it because she was nervous too. She basically said, you know, we've been listening for the next table. I just want you to know God loves you. He has a great plan for you. You were made for more than this. Basically, I want you to give God a chance. See, we can possibly grow big churches by not speaking the truth. But we cannot change a generation by avoiding the truth. But it's hard. It's hard, folks. It's hard. If you signed up for something easy, you came to the wrong place. It's hard. See, redemption doesn't come to the easy places. It doesn't come to places that are just be inherently good. No, redemption comes to places where evil has left its mark. Where it's dark. But you know when the watchman does his best work, don't you? When it's dark. <laughs> he gives security. He gives hope. John 1, 4, 5 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light... Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not and will not. The church has had every opportunity over the last 2,000 years to be extinguished, but it hasn't been, and it will not be. The question is, what role you want to be in in the middle of all of it? Just putting your little foot in the water and go, I kind of like this part, or you want to be in the deep end? I love what Andy Stanley says. It says, in your response to the dark, your response to the dark determines a larger part of whether or not you will be called to lead. For the darkness is what keeps the average person from stepping outside the security of what has always been. The leader who refuses to move until the fear is gone will never move. Five years ago, last, just two days ago, last Friday, 
February 16th, 17th, 2012, as I shared with you before, is the darkest hour of my soul since I've been a Christian, I think. Had one since then pretty dark. But up to that point, it was the darkest hour of my soul. And I won't go into the details of what me brought, to that, brought me to that moment, but I was up all night long, never went to sleep from Thursday morning all the way to Friday morning, the 17th in the morning. Got up, uh, Jan, Jan and I got up, I had a real good argument with her, and we did. And we hardly ever argued, but we did that morning. But I knew in the middle of that, and as many of you guys right now are studying the... Uh, uh, John Ortberg, closer, uh, God is closer than you think. And one of the things he talks about there is the spiritual pathways. I think you all may be studying it this week, those who are doing that. Well, I knew at that point, and one of the things that maybe saved me at that moment, I knew one of my spiritual pathways was nature. And where I go to is one of my holy, I call it holy ground, and that's Usury Park out in Mesa. Those who know where Usury Park is, it's, that's kind of my holy ground. I got one in Arkansas, and I got one out here. I knew I had to go there. And it just so happened that week was the week that I had interviewed with this board here at Renovation or it actually built more church than Nazarene, that Monday night, February 13th, 2012. Now it's February 17th, 2012, five days later. And I am going, Lord, what am I doing with all this? Why am I even trying all this? There's a lot that goes with it. So I go out to Usury. I go up, those who know the Wind Cave Trail, pretty good climb, go up behind it. How many have ever done Usury Park, Wind Cave Trail? Okay, it's an awesome trail, okay? But you go up behind it, you see where the stripe is, you go there, and then you go back around the backside of it. That's where I go. My music, which is my own, I'm an enthusiast and I'm a naturalist. And on top of that mountain, God began to speak to me, going, you're going to do this. At that point, this board hadn't voted at all. I just knew I was supposed to be doing this. I knew what I was called to do more than anything. The vision and mission that God had put in my heart about the whole idea of influence and those type of things, I knew God had put in me. I didn't know for sure at that moment. I knew the address, but I didn't know the calling. Up on top of that mountain... God made it clear to me. So I started running down the side of that mountain. I love trail running, so I started running. Those who've done it, it's a pretty tricky, but it's easy enough. So I'm running as hard as I can. I'm running down the side of that mountain, and I'm praying, which sometimes can be dangerous doing both at the same time, trail running, especially because you've got to pay a real close attention to where every rock is and every step you take and what you're going to bounce off of here and what you're going to do there. So I'm running, and I'm having this argument with the Lord, going, Lord, you know my left hip, you know, it's been hurt for seven years, by the way. If you just heal that hip, you know, and this is my argument. I don't know if you've ever had these kind of prayers, but I'm telling you, you know if you'd heal this hip, I would run even more. You know when I run with you, man, it's just awesome, my your time together. Don't you want to be with me more? Don't you want to have that time with me? The Holy Spirit spoke, I believe, clear as everything to me, impressed on me. He said, remember July 12th, I mean July 5th, 2005? And I go, in my mind, I'm going, July 5th, 2005. Yeah? We'd had a group of teenagers that we were doing something called ethos with. We'd gone to the side of the mountain, we'd gone up usury, I mean, uh, uh, Superstition Mountain, We'd gone up the side of that mountain, climbed up the top of that with about 30 teenagers. But on that day, on that day, our word for them that day was no excuse. And many of you, some of you in this room were part of that. We almost lost some kids, but anyway. I said, remember your word for the day? I said, sure do, Lord. It was no excuse. He said, exactly. 
I want to read Romans 12, 1 and 2 for you. God never gives me simple ones. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since that may be known, what may be known about God is plain to them because he has made it plain for them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For all they, although they knew God, they, never, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. God never gives me a scripture that's fluffy and <laughs> flowery. He says, you better tell them. No man is without excuse. What is on your watch? How are you doing over your soul right now? How are you on watch over your marriage right now? That applies. How are you on watch over your kids? I don't care what age they are. (laughs) For your workplace. What if there's a day coming out there where someone says to you, Dad, Mom, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, you knew that was going on. How did you stay so quiet? So you will either be remembered for what you did or what you failed to do. And for some of us in here today, I believe you're starting a great story. But for some of you here today, I believe you're stopping a great story. And you've decided that's all right. I don't know what drives you and what pushes you and what God has shown you, but I believe this with all my heart. You need to figure it out. And you need to figure out what you've been put on watch for. And it's going to be easy today to walk right out of this room. Because I did it for a long time. To walk right out of this room today. And forget the sermons like I forgot them. But I think for some of you today, there's potential for this as a game changer moment today. You've tried it all your way, and here's where you are. Barna says that the biggest issue that keeps people from being transformed is brokenness. Is that God brings them to a point of breaking them, and they walk away from it. I believe with all my heart that's the biggest issue in the church today that people are not willing to be broken. To put everything on the altar and just say, God, all this is yours. Every bit of it. I'm going to ask Josiah and the guys come back up and we'll do that last set again and we'll close.
know you. I shared with the uncommon group, there are, there are times, yeah, I question. God, are you sure about all this? <laughs> are you really sure? Because if Barna's right, only 2 to 3% of the people even want to go where we're trying to get people to go to. <laughs> that doesn't discourage you as a pastor. That, I don't know what would. Really, that's all that want to go there. Because if Barna's right, and I believe he is, most people want to land one, that I'm saved, that's awesome. Or two, following the next one, which is just church activity. The brokenness. Total dependence and reliance on God. To love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, and it's only till then, that you can have compassion and a heart for those far away from God to love them, love your neighbors yourself. The Word says, what's, what's, what's unbelievable about the watchman, one of his main roles was, to identify, role, roles was to identify the enemy. Guess what Jesus came along and said, once you identify your enemy, love them. But you won't do that if it all filters through you first, through your habits and through your strongholds and through your lenses and through your bondage. Because it's still all about you. And there's no way you can even love your kids the way you should when it's still all about you. I don't have a better offer for you. <laughs> the Word says that God is looking for a broken and contrite heart. That's it. But only, I can't do it. Only you can go there. So we begin to wind this series down. I just hope and pray that just being saved in church activity, I just pray that that's not enough for you. I just do. Because there's so much more. And I would just say this today, if you're here, and you were like me on December 13th, 1986, when I gave my life to the Lord, I had no idea about any of it. I didn't know any of it. I didn't know what the first book of the Bible was. But I knew one thing. There was something stirring in me. And something drawing me. And it was drawing me in a way that was so undeniable. And it was disproportionate in that moment of anything else I'd ever dealt with. But it changed the trajectory of my life. And there's been a lot of them along the way since then. But that moment. And since I'm on this side, and what I mean by trying to live this out the best I know how, I'm kind of like God speaking to Ezekiel. Why would you choose death? Why would you choose the other way? Won't you stand? I hope you here today, H-E-A-R, 
hear from me today as your pastor and friend and brother in Christ. The reason why we do what we do, we, we love you. And the reason why we push you and we, we call this out is because we don't see, really, at least from my end, I don't see any other call. And like I said, we can grow big churches without dealing with the truth. But we can't change a generation that way. So Josiah, as you lead us, I'm just going to pray for us real quick. I'm going to pray that you would come around these altars this morning, and I'll stay here as long as you want to stay and pray. Lord, to help us to get on watch, know our mission, and have sight to see discernment and wisdom boldness to do what he calls us to do. Lord, help us today as we use this time, Lord. We pray wisely and only in a way that you can stir people, Lord. I I pray that the messages and the songs have gotten where they need to get to. But Lord, only you call people. We pray for that today in your name, Jesus. Amen. I ask you to come and pray as you feel led this morning. sing that again we firm believe if you can't do it with people who love you and are here it's hard to ever going to be doing it out there that's for sure I know this day and age doing things like what we're doing right now are not the norm of coming down front and I can tell you right now I didn't know the day that I came to know when I walked down to make it public when I made it public to my Baptist church the next morning after I have no idea what he preached <laughs> again again how powerful sermons are <laughs> but I knew as I stood at the front of that church that day as people just kept coming by me shaking my hand which was kind of because I came and publicly said this is what's happened I knew in that moment as little as I did know that I was going to be able to raise my family the way it was supposed to be I didn't know I was going to have three more kids. But I knew that. I've never turned back.
I don't decide on Saturday night, and the kids will tell you, we didn't decide Saturday night or Sunday morning whether we were going to church or not. <laughs> that was already decided in 1986. You just happen to be born into a family that's already made that decision. <laughs> as many athletes as we had in our family, there was no confusion if sports and church. You just didn't play, I'm sorry. <laughs> just didn't play. And we never backed away from it. I know families who have spent a lot of time over the years and they attend this church and friends who have spent a lot of time that way and their kids not only didn't get a scholarship but they're not in church either you got to make some decisions you got to have some hard conversations in your home about all this what are non-negotiables Because if it's not this serious, if it's only just like a mere something we do as a side deal, this whole, be, that's, that's ludicrous to me. Who would do this as a side deal? It's either got to be the main thing or it should be nothing, in my opinion. It's either one or the other. I just pray that if you feel led this morning to come, that you'll come and just take that step. That first step is the hardest one, but the rest of them are easy. (laughs) But it is that first step out. God bless you as you decide. Sing it one more time, Josiah, and we will close in prayer. I'd be lost, I'd be lost, I'd be lost without you. Now I'm found.
Lord, help us. Help us to know individually that as families, if that's the case, as husband and wife, what our mission is, Lord. I'm not trying to push off today what I know you called me to do on someone else, but I do know you've called us. And it's clear if we'll just seek for it and we'll ask and we're willing to live into it and we're willing to even throw up at times in order to keep doing it till we quit throwing up. Whatever that is. Whatever that is. Or give us grit. Give us perseverance that only comes by living into the fullest of who you are. That when we see it, we're not going to let the small things hold us back. Lord, I do believe that the enemy strikes us at our greatest strengths because if he knows if he can knock us out in our greatest strengths. Wound us there. We'll give up. Lord, help us to just ask the question, Lord, what's on my watch? What is the mission you've called us to? And Lord, someday we won't be asked the question, If we're asked the question, we will be able to say, why was you so quiet? Why did you stay quiet? We'll say, we were not. We were not. Lord, again, thank you for our folks here. Lord, we love them. We know today's message is heavy and hard. But, Lord, you got a great calling, and you cry out as you did to our prophet Ezekiel, our brother. Why would you choose death? Choose life. Lord, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.